You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And we're back, new week, new guest, episode 53, and we have a legend on the call this week, uh, Paul Stimson, the first player from England to reach 100 caps for his country, but not only that, a very successful professional career, one of the greatest of all time to do it in this country. Um, started out at Crystal Palace um, under the legendary Roy Packham uh, as part of their junior program before uh, progressing through to the seniors. Uh, and then spending time at Kingston and Solent as well. But not just the basketball side of things, which you know we go into, but he obviously had a very successful career, uh, represented the Commonwealth Games, um, was part of the England team that finished top 12 in Europe at the time, um, beat Greece, like a lot of great stories that you hear about, but also the stuff that he's done after uh, basketball. He went and worked for FIBA for the last... Uh, ended up working with him in some capacity for uh, almost 30 years, um, on their TV broadcasting commercial side of things and that is where he's got very unique insight and kind of we got to speak about some things that I'm very passionate about which is kind of growing the game uh, barriers that the game has faced and how uh, we can push the game forward in this country so yeah super enjoyable conversation I really enjoyed it it did go on a little while one hour 45 minutes I think um, but well worth a listen Um, so yeah check it out and let me know what you think as always, we're calling for your support. Please check out our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash H-O-O-P-S-F-I-X. And there you can start to give us a monthly contribution of as much or as little as you'd like to help us doing the work that we're doing. Um, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. Please go and check it out and consider making a monthly donation to help us do the work that we're doing to help grow British basketball uh, please do let me know what you think uh, drop me an email sam at hoopsfix.com or you can reach out to me on every single social media platform at hoopsfix um, if you don't want to do any of that but you don't want to take 30 seconds to show us a bit of love uh, please give us a rating and review on iTunes it helps spread the podcast far and wide um, that would be much appreciated anyway the intro is already too long that is enough for me uh, please check out episode 53 of the hoopsfix podcast with me and Paul Stimson Paul welcome to the show Thanks a lot, Sam. It's uh, it's good to be speaking to you in these uh, incredible times. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a long time coming. I know we've been having this conversation uh, for a long time about oh, I want to get you on the podcast, and then at the time I had the studio, which was I was doing physical in-person interviews, and so it became a little more tricky. But one of the nice things about um, the sort of the coronavirus stuff is that actually all of a sudden I'm back to doing remote Skype-only calls, and it means I can get the likes of you, who obviously are not based in the UK, um, to jump on with me. So I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time. Obviously, there's a there's a lot to go into, um, and like I said, before we start recording, my focus is kind of your basketball career, and a place that I always start um, with everyone is how it first started. Like, what um, made you pick up a ball in the first place? What actually got you into the sport? Um, okay, well, for me, I I grew up with with football. My my father was a um, was a football league referee and linesman, so I I grew up going every Saturday. I'd play my football at, uh, at, at school and then uh, I'd go and watch him uh, referee or be a linesman. So football was, was my world. And then in 1970, I took my 11 plus and I went to, uh, I, I passed it and I, I went to a grammar school, Glynn Grammar School in Epsom in Surrey. And uh, I went along there and um, and then I was 
a bit bigger for my age. I was a defender as a, as a footballer. And uh, they put me into the house basketball team that ran it December that year in, in, in 1970. And I kind of sort of played a bit at that. And you know, it, was, it was fun, but soccer was my, was my sport. And then in the summer at, at Glynn, you were allowed to play on the school field because the weather was, was better and people bring a football and you play. And then at times, because I was a bit of a sort of uncompromising defender, at times people would say, well, you're not playing, you're, you're, you're too aggressive or whatever. So uh, I wandered down to the gym and thought, okay, I'll shoot around and and, and, and practice some, some basketball. And, and, and Glynn had a history of basketball, it, they'd, they'd, um, they'd played in national championships. They had a, uh, a player, that, Graham Whitney, that played for England schools and another one, Harvey Island, that was also England schools uh, player. And, uh, and so I started playing. And then at, uh, at, at 13, at 12, the following year of 13, I went to Carshorton School for Sutton and District basketball trials and there was a guy there John Collins who was the teacher at Carshorton at the time and um, and I made this Sutton uh, district uh, team and, and it led into the county team and he said oh you know if if you guys really want to to get better and you want to, to play there's a there's a basketball club uh, Crystal Palace that has a junior program they play at Crystal Palace and so at sort of age 14 I um I went up to uh, Crystal Palace and, and and joined the junior setup there. And there was uh, Roy Packham, who was the uh, uh, the person that headed up all the junior development. And, and Crystal Palace at the time were uh, a team that had. Uh, well, when I first started, my PE teacher at Glen used to take us to the Sobel Sports Centre in in uh, to watch, and uh, also at Selsden uh, to watch Crystal Palace. And so I saw them play. Used to go and watch them play. And this was before. And then Jimmy Guyman came. Uh, and then I was playing at the um, at the juniors there when I was 14, 15, and uh, and then made uh, the Falcons team, which is their, their under 19 team. And uh, it, it went from there. And, uh, and and basically, you know, Roy taught us uh, in his inimitable way how to play the game. We drilled into us every technique you can imagine, and it, it just took over my life. And uh, it was very fortunate because with the juniors there, we had, we'd never won the junior championship, uh, but we had uh, uh, some some great players that became players. I mean, when I was there, there was uh, Richard Rudd was there. Um, we had uh, Ken Nottage was there, uh, myself. Um, and then after that, there were uh, Clive Hartley, Mick Bett, um, Andy Inell, um, and then it just went from there. So, uh, so I started playing there and, uh, and, and got the love of the game. At what point was it at Crystal Palace that it became like a, a serious thing where you were like, you know, this is what I want uh, as a career. I want to really pursue this. Or was it earlier than that? Was it instantly kind of, what point do you think the switch happened from, oh, I'm kind of doing this as a, as a fun sort of, this is just a bit fun rather, uh, and it became a sort of, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. I think, I think when I when I joined the Falcons program, which I was being 14, 15, at that point, it meant, you know, two days a week, three days a week. My father 
drove me up to uh, Crystal Palace for training or wherever it was. Uh, it was a big commitment. You know, I lived in, in, in Epsom in Yule and decided to a 45 minute car journey. The buses didn't work there. You know, it took forever to get there. So, so that was a commitment. And then I realized that as I progressed that I could be a big fish in a small pool, but it was something that I, I enjoyed and uh, the camaraderie and the the team that, that that we built and and it became just so much part of my life and and from there has basically given me everything. I mean, it, it's funny you know, I say that, but it's literally given me everything. It's given me my career. It's given me my my working career. It's given me my wife and, and just everything has came came through. Also, gave me my education. So uh, so in those things, I, I owe a lot to it. And it was probably. Age 15, 16, 15 probably at that point, I said, you know, I want to be a basketball player. And what was your awareness uh, of the wider state of the game kind of in the UK? Like, um, you know, did you have guys that were playing in the, in the top flight that you were looking up to as role models? Um, or was it very much just uh, between you, your friends um, and the club that you were going to? Uh, no, because as soon as you got to the Crystal Palace youth program, you were really part of the whole Crystal Palace setup. And, you know, at that time we had, you know, the best team well, between Crystal Palace and, and Embassy uh, at the time uh, where uh, Peter Sproggis played, Steve Schmidt played, uh, and they were the big, the big rivals. Um, and so, you know, at that point, then you were, you were in it, you were very aware of what was happening in the, uh, in the games, a lot of times we'd play the warm-up games. At one point, the league had that the teams had to have a, a, a junior program. So you'd play the, the warm-up game would be a, a junior game. And then you'd stay and you'd watch uh, the senior team play. So sometimes you'd travel even with the, the senior team. So, you know, Jimmy Guyman, Mark Sayers, Martin Hall, Paul Philp, Ken Wharton, you know, all these people that played. Uh, for the uh, Fred Petty when he was there, he played briefly and stuff. All those people that played were were the people that you tried to emulate. And 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 at the time, you know, Jimmy Guyman was a guy by none. I mean, you know, between him and Peter Sproggis, they were the two biggest names in in the league. And and Jimmy, what he came on, he really sort of uh, changed the way the game was viewed. When you talk about. Um... You know, like Crystal Palace, and especially specifically Roy Packham and the junior program there is is something that has brought up with me, you know, time and time again about just how dominant they were and how good he was. Kind of when you look back on on your time there, you know, what do you think it was that separated um, what Roy was doing compared to others, and kind of I guess how was your experiences, you know, coming up under Roy? Um, Roy, Roy was driven. I mean, he was someone that put every single minute of his non-working time was into the the falcons program the crystal palace falcons the junior program uh and there was him there was harry baker uh who ran the 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 eagles which was the 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 second team the under 17s before the under 19s and kids would come from far and wide and, and basically in london at that time there was uh lenny hoy that ran the avenue program uh, uh, over in, in more East London, but there was really just the, the, the two programs. And, uh, you know, we had kids from North London that came. Uh, I mean, Martin Clark uh, came. He was from Folkestone and Chris, his brother. Um, 
know, Buck was from London, Steve Bucknell, and we just, it became a magnet. But he was, he absolutely ran things. He drilled into us the basics of the game. He was a huge believer in getting the basics right. So you would spend hours, defensive positioning, shuffles, running offenses, dribbling, shooting, correct shooting technique. Uh, and he really drilled us into being a team. There were no no stars. We were individuals. He'd have us, you know, playing. Uh, you know, sometimes we'd play in the local leagues and, you know, he'd say, oh, you're not moving without the ball. So he'd say, okay, this, this half, no one dribbles the ball. So we play a game where no one could dribble the ball. We had to pass a move. We had to pass the ball up the court. Uh, and you say, oh, you say you're allowed one bounce or something like this. So all the time he pushed us. Uh, he drove us. Um, he, he got, uh, he got the team to play in the American, uh, forces league. There was, um, American School of London and then there was, uh, Upper Hayford, uh, which is American Air Force base that had a, a varsity program. So we actually played in that league as well. So we played against American kids. We'd go up and play at these Air Force bases. We played American School of London at St. John's Wood, who was always strong. And so he was always pushing us to play better and better competition. Uh, I remember in 76, we went to the States for a week uh, and Boston and we played, you know, high schools there. Uh, we played, um, we played a warm-up game of the Celtics Knicks game against Roxbury high school, uh, who were the state champions. And this middle-class team from, uh, from England uh, came out and we actually beat them in overtime uh, at the Boston, at the old Boston garden. And uh, and we played, uh, yeah, we played there. And then afterwards, Dave Cowens, who played in the in the game against the Knicks, took us all out for dinner, scotch and sirloin afterwards. So it was kind of unbelievable. Roy just worked so hard, not only teaching us the thing, but just he, he became, you know, for many of the players, he was there. He was there, sort of. Uh, their father figure in so many ways. I mean, he took all these kids and I mean, the, 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 the number of players that have come through his program and all of them have very sound fundamentals and wherever they went on to, to leave their, leave their careers afterwards, whether they played professionally or whether they played local league or whatever, you know, still to this day, I mean, you know, an awful lot to Roy. When you talk about the kind of the the actual setup of the the competitions for junior basketball back then, when you were talking about playing domestic games, did you, was there like a true was it a true national league back then when you were playing up and down the country? Like, what was the competition structure? Uh, well, we played we played in the in the Surrey in the London League, uh, um, so we'd play uh, some game against uh, the men's teams, LSK and uh, various other teams. Uh, and then we'd play extra games against these Air Force bases, and Roy would get us to play games wherever uh, we possibly could. We played against uh, we played against Birmingham uh, with Dave Fisher's team at the time when he was running the program there. But um, but he really wanted us. He always pushed us to play. We played a lot of men's teams, a lot of men's basketball, um, and. Um, uh, so that we were competing always against you know the best we could, and then the first time we got through to the final must have been seventy six. Yeah, seventy six. We played Nottingham in the final at Wembley, 
and that was the first time we'd ever got to the final. Um, we played Nottingham before the Crystal Palace Embassy game uh, afterwards, so uh, and we won, and that was the first uh, the first championship that the Crystal Palace juniors had won. And that was the was that an under eighteen division, under sixteen, uh, under nine, under nineteen. Okay. Yeah, we had under nineteen at that stage, so we won it that year, um, and then we won it. We won it uh, the following two years for sure. And then after that, I, I finished uh, junior, but we then went on and just you know were, were dominant for many, many years. So when you talk about um, your own individual progression, you know, I know that um, you got your first England senior call up as a teenager, like 18, 19, was it? Yeah, I was 19. It was just after... Uh, I was finishing at, at, at Glen, and the coach of the national team was Vic Gambler, who was actually at St. Luke's uh, University. And so he was saying, oh, and they were playing at the time in the first division of the of the BBL. They had a team that played. And he was saying, you know, well, come down and, and, and play. Um, but then when I left, uh, when I left Glen, I decided to, to go to Borough Road because, you know, I was playing with the best team in the country with the best setup. So why would I, with the greatest respect to Vic and St. Luke's, why would I go down to Exeter when I could go to Borough Road and still play with the, with the Crystal Palace team? So, um, so that when, when I turned Vic down, cause I went there for all my interviews and, and everything and got offered a, a place, but then I went to Borough Road. He actually said to me, well, I hope that doesn't affect your, your, your international career in the future. And so I thought, okay, well, I, I've got to just work a little bit harder, and uh, yeah, I was I was fortunate um, that um, I made the transition. Uh, I played for the under 19s with with Humph. Uh, we played in Turkey, um, and then I, I played there at 17, 18, and then yeah, at 19, I I played uh, my first um, uh, cap, cap with the national team, and uh, on that team that year were Dan Lloyd and Pete Jeremich. We had our first caps all together. Wow, and when you think back to that sort of that time and and knowing that you were going to represent the seniors, like what did that mean to you? Um, and I guess like, what was kind of your mindset going into into representing the the senior national team at such a young age? Uh, for me, to this to this day, to represent your country at anything for me is is, is the greatest honour that you can have, and uh, and so. You know, when I played at, at whether it was a junior and then at, at senior level, you know, for every time I, I, I played, it was I never ever took anything for granted. And for me, it was the greatest experience and the greatest honor. And, uh, and, and to this day, you know, whenever the national anthem plays, it still brings, uh, hairs on the back of my, my neck. And, uh, and we had a, we had a whole thing with the England team, uh, because we had dual nationals. Uh, uh, at the time, or players that were from from abroad, we had right from the start that when you when you had your uh, cap, um, we had the dinner afterwards, and each of the players we had a tradition. That each of the players, you'd get your tie, you'd get your pin, and they'd stand up, and you said what it meant to play for the national team, and then you had to sing the national anthem. Uh, at the dinner table with everyone else there. So if you were on your own, you sang it on your own. But if you were two or three of you, then you you sang it in a group. You sang the first couple of lines, and then the rest of the team would, would join in. And that was something that that was a tradition 
throughout the, the first part of my my career with the national team and all through Bill's uh, Bill Bezik's uh, time because we just felt playing for the national team was, was so important and we just wanted people to be part of that that family and to know what it was to to play for your country. One one of the things um, Mick Bet said when when I had a quick chat with him yesterday was that kind of when you started with the um, the senior national team, it was almost like you're involved in the sort of the transition of the program from the, I mean, he, he described it as the old school and the new school where the new school ended up being, you know, a lot of the dual nationals that started coming in and playing for the national team every year. Whereas when you were first involved, it was, it was generally just sort of straight English players. Do you like, was there any potential um, issues around that at all? Like, was there any feeling about, Oh, you know, these guys aren't true Brits or whatever. And they're coming and representing the English England team or, or was it all, you know, as far as you remember, you know, absolutely fine. Um, on the first, on the first national team that we, we had, you know, we had people, you know, Ian Day played, um, uh, we had Neville Hopkins, Steve Asinda was playing, Dan and Pete, uh, as I say, played and, and, and Dan Lloyd and, and Pete Jeremich, when they came over, yes, they, they'd been educated in the, in the States, but when they came over to play for the national team, they, they were both very honest players and they wanted to play for the national team. They didn't see it just as a thing. Oh well, I'll do this for the summer. Uh, you know, go and see some countries. And uh, and it was something that they were proud to do. And so when we had we had, as I say, Pete and Dan were the first two that we had. And with the rest of the team that we had, it all just fitted in and, and, and meshed. And over the years, we had more. Uh, there's no question. Um, and and some. Some have felt stronger playing for their country than, than others, but there was always a, we always had a balance for the most part, particularly in the early times. And uh, and you know it, it it was it was playing for the national team. It was never you never felt when we had in in '81 when we had our European run where we we qualified from Jersey to go to Turkey, um, and then in Turkey. We managed to qualify for the finals in 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 the Czech Republic, uh, Czechoslovakia at the time. So we ended up being in the top 12 in Europe and surprised everyone uh, by going there. Um, the team that we had, you know, we had uh, Ian Day, we had Jimmy McCauley, Neville Hopkins, myself. Um, we had Dan and Pete. We had Paul Richards, uh, who was a dual national, played at Doncaster. But there was never any sort of them and us. Mm. Everyone mixed in we were a really close-knit group and and basically on the court would do anything we could do to to win the game it wasn't a question of i'm not going to pass you the ball because you're not really english or, or or whatever or you don't really care and and that really you know w- was a major major part of the, of the whole thing it, you really felt and i i've been blessed actually over the years that really for the most part all the teams that I played on, whether at club or, or national team level, were, were real teams. Yeah, it's a, it's um, yeah, it's, it's a funny debate that kind of it comes up a lot. I mean, especially sort of around the London 2012 Olympics, and and of course, and then just I guess with us with the uh, a BBL over the years, is that you know like finding the the dual passport holders. It's like you're essentially taking spots from true Brits, and then you're harming the developer development of the domestic game. But on the flip side of that, there's a lot of people that also say, well, by having high-level Americans, it actually raises the level of the of the British guys that you have, you know. Um, kind of where do you sit on that debate and kind of, yeah, how do you see it all fitting in 
do you have any issue with it or do you think uh, you know as they're eligible for a passport and, and that essentially means they should be representing the national team if they're the best players um, I think certainly I grew up with most of my time around players and and you said about Mickey I mean Mickey Bet was the year below me at, at another school so we grew up rivals in school basketball then we were at Borough Road together so we were teammates and then we played juniors at Crystal Palace together um, the the dual nationals or overseas educated players that we had when they came to play it was okay you're there you're 19 you're 20 years old uh, and you you better step up or, or step out and and for me I learned so much from their mentality um, and 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 that held me in good stead I, I learned from them uh, I'd go back and, 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 and practice and I did a huge amount of practice on my own I just practiced shooting the ball and and, and, and and doing things and I'd read whatever I could at those days there was no basketball on, on TV so I remember we used to get the Pontel uh, videos that came over from the States yeah. and then they were copied and passed around and you'd watch those and, and you'd see those and you'd pick up various things but but for me, the players that came, there's no question that they they elevated the game and they they, they made you better players. Now, as in everything, there's a there's a balance, and I think um, that if you have a program, and you know we were fortunate at Crystal Palace and and at other places because Birmingham had a program uh, as well, and there were players coming through. As I said, there were players at Avenue uh, coming through, and those players would go on and play play National League. I think there has to be a pathway, because otherwise, you know, you have so many talented kids, and there there are still so many talented kids, and I think you've got to have a pathway through. So as a club, you you've got to realise that you know, developing your sport. At the end of the day, if you really want to develop your sport in a country, you need to develop stars from that country. Because with the greatest respect, you know the British psyche. Uh, I've been away now, but the British psyche hasn't changed that much. We love our own. We don't mind we don't mind people coming in and we'll take to them. But at the end of the day, the real heroes of our country are those kids that, that that came from our country whether they're soccer players or, or whatever and you know it, it was always the thing that when you know when i was playing i, I was i was after i, I finished up our road I, I i taught and you know it was oh you know he goes to my school or he's from this area and kids would come up and you'd have a link and the the foreign players or the american or the educated players uh, from overseas would go and do clinics but they'd all come but there was there was always a, a, a case of you know having players that were homegrown because by nature they do stay and they do come back and they do put back into the into the game and uh, you know I, I see so many players even now that were playing when when I was playing you know and and, and after me you know you only have to look around and uh, you see you know Jeff Jones is still uh, around Buck is doing stuff Joel Moore is doing stuff um, you know Paul Blake at Newcastle uh, when Kenny Nottage was was there and is still involved what they're doing and and all these players that, that are still running things Mark Clark who we met at who was also at Borough Road 
came to Bayreuth as a rower, finished Bayreuth as a as a basketball coach, uh, and, and went on. and And they're all putting back, and there's a whole generation after that that are putting back. You know, in 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 Birmingham, uh, I played in a Masters tournament last year, the first time I played for 20 years, and. Dan Lloyd came over and Pete Jeremich and Dave Lloyd played um, and uh, Ken Wharton played and, and we just had a great time. But George Branch was there, uh, who's still playing, still looks in great shape. And, you know, and he's still doing stuff in the Birmingham area. And there's so many good stories around of, of, of people that are still involved. Now, if you go back and you think of all those great basketball players of, of our age, you know, Dan Lloyd is still around. Pete Jeremich is back in the States. But how many of those are still in the UK? And there are a few that are still there, still putting in their time and still developing the sport. And I think you've got to have a balance. Um, I think looking back in 2012, and I can only say this from the outside because I was obviously at FIBA and, and overseas, you know, you felt that after 2012, the program took a dip and when you looked what was the the legacy from it, you know, there were no English coaches, there were no coaches that stayed on. Everyone kind of left, went back to the States. And maybe in hindsight, we could have done something to to develop something, but it's easy to, to look back at the time. Um, but it was a great, uh, you know, it was a great program. It was great to have them there. There were some great things. Earl Deng, Pops did a, did a great job pushing things. Dan Clark uh, and, and and all the others. And and it's good to see that they still want to be involved. I mean, Lou Deng now is president of the South Sudan Basketball Federation. So he's still involved in, in basketball. I read recently that, you know, Pops is, uh, uh, you know, is always like to be involved and still be involved. And that's great because we need those players to be involved in that sport in the right way. Uh, and and there's got to be a mix between the administrators, the ex-players. You need some charismatic people to, to, to drive, to be the Pied Pipers, to drive the sport so that the sport, the sport can, can evolve. I mean, um, you know, I was fortunate that right at the beginning of my, my career, I was what, my second year at Bar Road, I remember um, Crystal Palace, Terry Doherty called me up and said, oh, there's a, there's a guy coming in who's going to just play an exhibition game for us. Uh, can you, you know, can he come to the gym and shoot around a bit and drive, can you drive him down the next day to, to Gravesend? I said, sure. And I met this guy and there was this little five foot eight black American guy came off the plane and he says, hi, I'm Orton Bird. And, uh, and it went from there. And for three years, Orton taught me so much about the game. And I was blessed because I had, you know, probably, well, the greatest point guard we've, we've ever had in the country. And you know, he said to me, he said, you get free, get your hands ready. When you get the ball and you have space, you shoot the ball. And, you know, you made the game very easy. But uh, so I've been blessed over the years with so many great, great players that, uh, that I've played with that, that have taught me so many things about basketball, but also about life. Just to carry on with the the national team stuff, obviously you went on to you became uh, the first first English player to reach 100 caps, I believe. Um, so you you had a lot of experiences with the national team. You know, when you look back on it now, um, what are the the big highlights that stand out? Like one of the particular ones I, I want to talk about, which everyone told me to ask you about, was the the victory against Greece with Nick Gallis playing. Um, but I don't want to I don't wanna put words in your mouth, so I'll, I'll let you kind of go on things that, that stick out for you in terms of your your national team experiences, particular memories or, or standout performances. 
Um, yeah, I mean that one was was special. Uh, I remember when I was when I was sixteen, the we just joined the the EU and they had a European um, basketball camp where they had a boy and a girl that they took from each of the European countries. And so there was I went from England, a guy called Dave Dave McKenzie from Scotland, Scottish girl, English girl. And we went to Belgium and to to go for a one week camp. And I remember going there and um, and I was rooming. I, I got into this dorm and I was rooming with this Greek guy and uh, said, hi, uh, yeah, we, we roomed together. We played in Syria. He was a year older than me, a uh, year or two years older than me, a big guy, but uh, a guard, but quite well built. And it was uh, Panionis Yanikis. Uh, and so we first met each other at 16. We then played national team basketball against each other for many years. And then when I left and, and joined FIBA, he obviously went into coaching and followed him around both coaching the, the Greek national team, what have you. But I remember we played and then in 1981, as I say, we um, we hosted, England hosted um, the group, the pre-qualifier European Championships in Jersey. So we went to Jersey and we had to play Ireland and Denmark and a couple of other teams to qualify for the qualifying round. So we all went to Jersey and, and that was the year, as I say, with, there was, there was Pete, uh, Jeremy, Dan Lloyd, Ian Day, Steve Asinder, Neville Hopkins, uh, myself, Jimmy McCauley, Paul Richards. And we went there and we won the group. And so we qualified to go to, to Turkey. And um, and then we um, we played in Turkey and we lost lost to Greece, but we beat Turkey in Turkey. We beat Finland, and Greece and ourselves qualified for the final round, which was in um, in, um, in in the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, in, in Bratislava. And uh, we went there, and Vic Ambler was the coach. And over, over the period of time. I'd, playing and um and i'd played we'd played greece before in a couple of friendlies and uh at that point they had unikis as their point guard and they had um this uh this guy nick gallus uh who was the leading scorer at the ncaa at seton hall uh he was actually there pete jeremich was at seton hall as well uh so they knew each other um another great Ex-master player Dan Calandrillo was also a Seton Hall player. Came later into our league, played at Bracknell, and um, and so we we played against them. And I remember we we had to play um, we had to play Greece, and you know Gallus is was just an unbelievable scorer. He's five foot eleven. Uh, there was no three point line in those days. He'd averaged thirty plus for his career. Always went right, uh, but he just was an unbelievable scorer. But he also, as most scorers, he wasn't always the, the greatest defender because he had to rest somewhere. So we played them and uh, the game, you know, we were up and down and we managed to stay close with them and maybe they took us slightly and stuff. And uh, at the end of the day, yeah, we, we managed to, um, we were up uh, and then they needed a shot. The end we were up, we were up two, I think, at, at the time. And then just at the end of the game, uh, managed to get a steal and uh, and uh, it went up and when you're young at those days and your legs and stuff and I just felt that I'd had one of those games I went up and, and dunked the ball and anyone that knows me from my career that is something that I'm 
kind of renowned for. And uh, we won the game 94-90 or 64-60 or something. And, and I had I had a really good game and, and that took us through to actually the, the next round. But I remember afterwards when we were all joyous and we were all in the, in the locker room, Vic... Uh, had a go at me because he said, why didn't you just lay the ball up? He could have missed it and I could have thrown the game, which to some point was true, but sometimes you just get carried away with the emotion of it all. But that was, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was some game. And, and, and to this day, actually, uh, in, in Greece, there are people that still remember my name from those days. And, uh, and I remember in, in 2000 and, Seven Finland beat Greece in the Eurobasket in Slovenia, uh, shocked them and knocked them out, and Greece didn't qualify for the final round. And the newspapers said that this the this was the worst period ever in Greek basketball since they <laughs> lost to the England team in 1981. So that was the uh, that was the criteria. Uh, but in those days, in 1981, you know, we had a situation where we had really built something. And we were really going places. And from that moment, you think in 81, we beat Greece. In 1987, Greece won the Eurobasket with Gallus and Unikis. And Greek basketball went this way. And, and English basketball, we'd never really developed from there. In 81, in 83, we won the Commonwealth Games uh, in, in New Zealand. We had a separate basketball tournament and we went there and we won. But then after that, we, we flattered to deceive. We had times when we were in games but we never had it wasn't we didn't have the talent we, we didn't have the preparation and you know national teams it's, it's so often it's about preparation I mean you know because you've seen the teams over the years I mean the great great basketball teams that you see on the national team level you look at them the nucleus have played junior basketball together and they've played hundreds of games together uh, the Argentinian team with you know Ginobili and, and, and the others were just and, and Scala, they were just a, a club team because they they knew each other inside out, and we never really had that. Why do you think? And we that was have something. That? Um, we could never get a program together that really sort of focused and said, "Okay, the national team is playing, so if they're going to play." next week we need a week's preparation so we stop the league for a week because the national team is the, the driver of everything and we never managed to get that i remember in must have been 83 or 84 we played the czech republic at the granby halls uh when martin clark played and uh and we won we were down 16 at the half or something. We came back and we won by two, uh, which is an unbelievable, great thing. It was live on Channel 4, and it was a really great thing. But we'd been together like two days before. <laughs> so the first half, I remember Bill was interviewed afterwards, and he said, well, the first half was our practice game because we had no warm-up. So we were making mistakes. We were passing the ball. You know, we just were out of sync. Yeah. And... And I think that's been something that's that that that, that really has has been throughout. Um, you know, you have to you have to look and maybe set things up and say, okay, where do we want to go? And you know, to to, to build your sport, 
club basketball is absolutely crucial because that's your, your pyramid. That's where your know, players come from, your grassroots. They go from you know schools or, 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 or small clubs or local leagues to, to national clubs. But your national team has to have a program and it has to have a program that is centered to, to drive success and to build stars because, you know, at the end of the day, that's what's going to drive your sport, I believe. If you were going to just digress a little bit off topic a little bit, but if you were in charge of sort of um, developing sport in England or the UK in general, uh, what model would you like to see it adopt? I, I always think I've always felt like the regional institute model, kind of like a French incept thing is something that could work well here where you say, you know, you've got four, four to six locations that are like, this is where all of the top talent goes and spend the entire season together. You know, they're, they're tapped into the broader pathway of like knowing they're all being taught the same things, the same systems or whatever. And then ideally you, you kind of have that um, continuity through the entire program. But, but yeah, like if, if you were doing it, like where do you, where would you like to see, what would you like to see England do to make things work to kind of have greater success at national team level? Um, that's a very good question. I would, I would say, I, I agree with you. I think, I think you need to have centres of excellence, um, and I think we're blessed actually because I think, uh, and again, it's only what I've read from from afar. But there are programmes that are, you know, building um, uh, uni- linked with university where players are, pl- you know, kids can go to university, they can play and also get their degree. But I would have centers uh, of excellence i would have your national coach so your national coach wouldn't be just the coach of the national team he would be responsible for putting together the whole fundamental coaching style system for the whole of the development of the national team program so that if you play for the national team at 16 or 17 you uh, you're an athletic team, you run, you press, and you don't sit back and play zone defense. I mean, I'm just you know, yeah, yeah, saying. Yeah. But that's the style at 16. But that's the style at 16, 18, and that's how the men's team plays. So that when you step up, you're stepping up into a system that already exists and you're familiar with, rather than, okay, I'm a, I'm a big kid. Uh, I'm used to being you know, dominant. I sit at the back of a zone with my hands up. And then suddenly I go up a age group and now we're saying, oh, we're going to press. And I, I don't know how to do that uh, because uh, so it's all got to be joined up. Um, I think uh, skills development program and I think uh, to have them and centers of excellence and to take people to play, play there and have them playing in an enclosed system and you take the best kids and you, 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 you teach them the skills of the game, but you also teach them not only about basketball, but life and you know, the, the, whole, the whole system uh, to go from there. I think that's something that, that, that needs to happen. But I think it starts from the top that you need to have a vision and to say, okay, where do we want our, our basketball? How do we want our, our basketball to be run, administer, what is the style? I mean, you know, the British style, we're, we're blessed with some incredible athletes. So, you know, let's let's find a way of, of, of building that. But at the same time, you know, sometimes suddenly you find that you don't have any point guards. You know, why does the UK, 
we should be blessed with point guards because it's the perfect position for us. We don't, we're not naturally a, a tall country where we might have, you know, 220, 215, 210 players, but we got a lot of point guards, surely. So, you know, the program, how do you develop that? And, you know, point guard, what is a point guard? You know, and how do you, and everyone should be able to shoot the ball. I mean, there is nothing, all you have to do to shoot the ball is to practice. That's all you have to do. If you take a thousand shots every day, then you get a good shooter. You need the right technique, you need a ball, you need a gym. And, uh, you know, the greatest shooters in the world, uh, you know, when you look at their DNA, they didn't just wake up and become a great shooter. Behind that is just loads and loads and loads and loads of practice on their own, boring, just repetitive, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's that skill cycle. But I think, I think there's great potential for British basketball. I think there really is. I mean, you know, we've chatted, I know over the past, so there's so many things going on. Uh, and I think there are, it just need to bring it together. And I know finance and funding isn't always there at the moment, but there's, there's got to be ways of bringing all the different people that are involved and, and the club has said the BBL is crucial to it all, as is all the development programs, uh, because there is some great talent out there. When you talk about the pathway kind of in your obviously one of the one of the things that's quite unique about you when we're talking about legends of the game and stuff is that obviously you were in England the entire time and you didn't go to the States for a US education or anything like that. Was that something that uh, you were aspiring to do or players were aspiring to do uh, of your generation like was it a case of you know we want to go to the states that's where we want to try and pursue the dream um or was it or was it not really kind of like you know nowadays that's the thing to do like all of the british kids it's like at the moment they're showing any kind of potential it's like how can i get to the states you know that's that's what i want to do um kind of what was the general sentiment ar- around it uh with younger players um back in in that era um that that's a that's a good question i mean certainly to play you know in the states you know the 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 whole dynamics of the game were different in 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 those times uh but um i remember um in in 1980 um i was lucky enough to get selected for the gb squad um and we went to uh florida university of florida and there were I think they took 16 or 20 players to begin with from, you know, Scotland, Wales uh, and England to go. And our coach there was Norm Sloan. Now, Norm Sloan had just won the uh, NCAA with NC State. And then he'd gone to University of Florida and his assistant coach was Monty Tao there. And um, I remember, you know, we went there now. It's 1980. So I am 20 years of age. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm perfect for him. And uh, I remember the first time he went in there, he sat everyone down and he said, okay, you know, I'm coach. We're going to be together for the next six weeks. And, you know, the first thing that we have, we're a team and I have some rules. And the first rule I have is no facial hair. So suddenly we had Ken Wharton on the team who had his walrus moustache and he had it his whole life had to shave it we had Nigel Probert had a full beard had to shave it and and that was the first thing that he said you know there was no facial hair and then on from Crystal Palace there was Ken Wharton myself Dan Pete Jeremich and Alan Bailey who was another great player um, Scottish 
uh, player dual, dual national. So they, they were there, um, and then we had Ian Day there, Stephen Cinder, myself, and you know, we had whole group. And we were six weeks there, and we trained uh, University of Florida. We stayed at the Holiday Inn, so we walked across campus each each time, and then we had a full program. Bob Hope was the general manager, and he put together this great program. And um, and I remember there. Um, during the, the program, Norm Sloan or Monty Tao actually approached me and said, you know, uh, would you be interested to, you know, look at having a scholarship to come and play at the University of Florida? And to be quite honest, you know, I'm a 6'2 white guy that could shoot the ball a little. I was in my second year of, of University at Borough Road. I was playing at, at Crystal Palace. Um, and for me, my academics were were, were important uh, and you know I always wanted to have a, a career outside of sport in case I injured or whatever and so at that point I just said you know it, it just wasn't going to be worth it I would have to sit a year out because academically and what have you University of Florida with the greatest respect athletically was, was a football school it, it, basketball was getting better no question that's why they had Norm Sloan there but academically, it wasn't. You know, it, was high, it wasn't an Ivy League school, or where I was really going to get maybe an education that it would be worth something. So, you know, it was it was something that was suggested, but I never really followed up on it. Um, having said that, there were players that after me. I mean, Martin Clark uh, went to high school in Boston, so Martin was a couple of years, um, but he went. Steve Bucknell uh, went. Uh, Mickey. When he was at uh, Borough Road, he had a year where he went to to, to college. Scants, Peter Scantlebury went, uh, if I remember correctly. Richard Scantlebury went, his brother. And so people went. Maybe they didn't go for the whole four years uh, or they'd go to, to high school. If they went to high school, then they tend to stay and go on to college. Others would go for maybe a year and come back or, or, or whatever. And so, um, you know, it wasn't really that opportunity for me at that moment Plus, I was in an environment where you got to understand it. At that stage, Crystal Palace were playing. We were playing in Europe every year, so we were playing Maccabi Tel Aviv. We were playing uh, Milan. Uh, we were playing top European teams every year. We'd get to a group stage, um, and so we'd play that. We'd have the WICB at Christmas, so we'd have top European teams. Um, I was, you know, we were training four or five times a week against these players that were just of a really high standard, very competitive. So, you know, I had more than enough on my plate to learn, to develop within that environment. And it was very competitive. I mean, practices were as competitive as, apart from the European games, when we were playing, you know, the National League games, for the most part, the practices were was were more competitive because you know, everyone wanted to take a shot at you. We, we had a great squad and everyone wanted to play. So it was it was really competitive there, which was great. And as a coach, you know, uh, we had uh, Tom Wisman to begin with and Vic Tinsley. Then we had Danny Palmer. And, uh, you know, Danny wanted to bring up the youth. And so, you know, it was everyone got a chance to play. If you put out in practice and showed you were good enough, then you'd play. So that was a great environment as well. So when you um, were at university at Borough Road and then also obviously still playing for Crystal Palace, uh were you getting paid as a professional player at that point, or like what was the status of like sort of professionalism, amateurism with the with the basketball league uh, at that time? Um, my first 
my first deal, it must have been my first year at university. Okay. My first deal was that uh, they gave me, I got a car. <laughs> so they didn't, didn't pay me, but I got a car. So I was at university and I got a car. And I remember I had a car and, you know, 18 that's you know that's gold so yeah i had a i had a club car and so that was the 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 first thing and then they started paying uh some money but for me the money i earned playing basketball was always i never ever fully played uh professionally when i left borough road i i taught for three three and a half years and then i was playing basketball and getting some money and also teaching i then left in 80 sorry come no no i'm listening okay and uh and so then so then i was teaching but then i was getting so much time off at the weeks because we were playing european basketball so on a you know i'd leave on a monday afternoon to take a flight to play a game on a Tuesday, come back on a Wednesday or leave on a Tuesday to play a game on a Wednesday, come back on a Thursday. The score were great. Uh, but after a while it, I was realizing that, you know, I'm, I'm taking probably six or seven trips a year where I'm missing school. And it wasn't fair on the, on the kids, uh, the teachers. And, and then I had an opportunity in 84, where I left teaching and I set up or I took over the Crystal Palace Basketball School, which was a program that started with Dan Lloyd and Dan left Crystal Palace. He, I think he went north. I think he went, yes, he went to Manchester and I took over from that. And so from there, I then spent uh, three years running a basketball school where I'd go into schools, coaching, teaching basketball, but I also went a bit further and I, I got a, a sponsorship from the health education council and they were doing a big thing about uh, healthy eating, smoking, drinking. And so I'd go in to schools and I would speak to, to kids about um, uh, taking responsibility in their lives for what you do. So, you know, it wasn't a question of just saying don't smoke. It was like, okay, if you're going to smoke, know what it's going to do to you. If you're going to drink, know what it's going to do to you. And don't just smoke because your mate smoke, be your own person. So it was, you know, so I did, I did, I did that and I got involved in that as well as, as well as coaching uh, and, and playing. So although I was then a full-time player in some ways, I had the basketball school and, you know, I teach, we teach probably about 10, 12,000 kids a year uh, around the country. I did various camps. Uh, uh, I found a, um, I went to Carshorton, uh, high school for girls. And there was a black girl there that was playing netball that started playing basketball, uh, at the basketball school a girl called Andrea Congreves. Yeah. I was so going to ask she about that, actually. Yeah. So she then, uh, uh, came to the basketball school and, uh, and, and played, uh, and started taking up basketball, which is great. So we had girls, I coached girls as well as boys and it was just great. It was really great. Just putting back and, and getting kids involved. And of course, all these kids used to come along to watch the games. Um, and, uh, at the same time, I'd, uh, I'd do a, a deal with uh, four sport at the time, 
down in order shop that had basketballs. So I'd buy some basketballs. So I'd sell basketballs to kids and give tickets to the games and, and just really try and promote the sport and, uh, and, and put back. And, and I love doing it. When I um, look back on... Oh, have I got you? I'm just... Connections... Oh, I've got you again. There you go. Sorry. Um, uh, yeah. When I look back on uh, sort of that era and I, I see photos and, and I look at, you know, the programs and, and other newspaper clippings and everything else, it, it feels to me like um, there was a much stronger uh, basketball culture, you know, in terms of a fan base, in terms of it being a thing and being sort of in the in the public's consciousness. Like when 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 you look back and you kind of, I guess, compare that to now or, or, or just look back on that time, kind of how would you describe the basketball culture and if you do feel that it was stronger than it is now or even maybe just just in in, in terms of spectators um why do you think it was like what, what what do you think has changed that has led to us being in a situation now where we we don't have a basketball culture in the same sort of way you know um yeah there, there definitely was a basketball culture there is no there's no question um that um we played you know uh, the teams didn't have huge arenas, but they were full. So we'd play, you know, you'd play at uh, Crystal Palace uh, and, you know, we'd have pretty full stadiums all the time. You'd play at Birmingham, it would be full. You'd play at Manchester, the Stratford Centre then, it would be full. Sunderland uh, and and Bracknell had a great crowd and, and stuff. It would be full. And there was definitely a basketball culture. I mean, we had, you know, Chelsea. Four came on and board to make basketball. Um, they, they took on basketball and American football at the same time. They put their their, their 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 promotional spend behind it. They were a new channel. They wanted to reach the youth, something different, uh, and they invested. Um, we had we had some great great players. I mean, you know, not just great players, but great personalities. I mean, Orton everyone talks about we had bobby kinzer who if you're ever going to start a team from scratch and you want someone who's charismatic that's going to drive people and bring people in then bobby is just absolutely perfect for it uh we had alan cunningham uh i mean just so many great players and then others after that and of course we had um very very competitive league and each club had a very active supporters club so that, you know, when they traveled down, they would bring, they bring fans that either travel on the bus or, or they would come uh, separately. There were some really big rivalries. Um, and, and I think there were also, they managed to link a lot. Uh, the communities really felt that the clubs were part of their community. I mean, you know, a lot of the clubs did outreach programs, but not only that, they had lots of players that they could identify with, you know, Bracknell, you know, Scans was at Bracknell, Sam Stella was at Bracknell. Uh, we had a whole bunch of people at Crystal Palace. Uh, George Branch was at, uh, at Birmingham, along with all the dual nationals, the other players. But I think there was Kevin Penny was at Warrington, and there were a lot of English players that also drove support and were popular. And um, and you know Richard Rudd, Andy and Nell were at Kingston, uh, and I, I, it just had a situation where it galvanised. It wasn't just players from overseas; there were lots of great players from overseas, but also there was a whole infrastructure of people, and there were also a whole group. Every club had a whole group of, of volunteers 
that would come to every game and they would be the ones that would be helping. They'd pick up, you know, drive people to places. They would do the tickets. They would do the supporters club. But really part of the, the, the whole sort of culture of the club. So it was never just just one thing. And I think that was something that was really, really dominant. When you came to a club, you really felt that you were you were part of that you know part of that club, and there was a lot of community uh, spirit, a lot of identification, and also, you know, we were fortunate that that at the time when the players they were involved in different things, um, you know, Steve Asinder, uh was the first one, but he did the superstars, then Alton did superstars, you superstars know, Steve. Well. Superstar, oh, you wouldn't have known. Superstars <laughs> at the time was one of the biggest um, shows on, on, on TV. And what it was, it was they had um, sportsmen from different sports and they would do 10 different things over two days. So they would do like swimming, you know, 50 meter swim, uh, rifle shooting, weightlifting, uh, basketball skills, cycling, sprints, obstacle course. And you had qualifiers. And then if you won, top two of your qualifiers you'd go through to the final and um and you know people kevin keegan did it uh you know uh, brian jacks who was uh, neil adams uh, all olympians and different sports so having someone from basketball in these things was like wow you know and um you know we had um saturday morning uh, tv kids shows there would be a basketball player on there and it's like wow mm. you know and 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 the draw for the uh, national cup final would be on breakfast TV, and so it, it just it, it went away from just basketball. We started to slowly be out into the public domain and into quiz shows and and being around, and so it became much more part of a culture and not just basketball. And um, and there were a lot of people that worked on that. I think the clubs did a lot of good PR. Um, and really worked away from just basketball. It really tried to build the community, but also outside. You know, your sport really grows if you can get it off the back pages of the newspapers onto the front pages or certainly into the lifestyle pages. I mean, you know, right now we are blessed uh, with Ovi. I mean, you know, last year with Love Island, it's just manna from heaven. And the fact that he came and played with the Lions and, and the, the, the image that he's got, it's just, it's great, you know, and he should be on, we should have him on different quiz shows. We should have him on different things, just pushing the thing because yes, he's, you know, he's a star in his own right, but he's a basketball player. Mm. And it was a, it's a perfect opportunity to build on that. So, um, how, you know, that would be. How fundamentally important do you think is the TV piece for the growth of a sport? You know, like if, if, you know, if we were to talk about suddenly making basketball in the UK right now become a much more mainstream, popular, um, do you think that is possible without TV or do you think it has to have some type of broadcast deal that puts it in people's homes every single week? Um, I think nowadays there has to be... Uh, you have to have it joined up. I mean, years ago, you would have said, oh, get it on TV, and we're there. Nowadays, you have to have a whole uh, joined-up approach. You have to have some – I believe you have to have some exposure on a recognizable broadcast platform. Now, if it's 
TV? Is it the BBC? Is it Sky? Is it BT Sport? Is it you know an OTT channel or whatever? I don't know, but there has to be a regular place where there is live basketball and well-produced, uh, insightful, competitive. But then linked to that, and you, Sam, would know this better than me, there has to be a complete digital strategy. You know, social media now, and even more so with the lockdown and everything we're doing now, for example, there has to be a whole strategy linked to social media. What story are we doing today? Who are we featuring? What are we doing? How are we doing it? And and this comes from the top down. So for me, you know, um, every BBL club, uh, should be working hard on their digital strategy. You know, now we've got you know no basketball, but all these players are around. I've been seeing some stuff. We're doing three-point shots into the waste paper bins, which I think is great. But it should be a whole bunch of stuff. You know, guys working out just like the soccer players doing. You know, how they're working out at home, what they're doing. Well, we could do that for basketball. There's there's no question. Um, there is a a community that is. That's behind basketball in the UK. It's a, it's in many ways a sleeping community, but there is an active community, and we've got to find a way of bringing them all together and giving them something to um, uh, to work for. You know, um, every you running hoops fix have a group of people that follow you, and you're one of the the, the leaders in terms of trying to promote, develop youth basketball stories, etc. But you're, you're you're doing stuff. There's things on on Facebook. There are the historical English basketball history on Facebook. Uh, Eagles have a great program. Glasgow, Leicester. So all these clubs have their own uh, databases. But there must be a way of bringing that all together, all together. You know there were. 6,000 people, uh, Birmingham for the final or 8,000 for the trophy final. They all bought tickets. Who were they? Where did they come from? Let's find them. Let's talk to them. Let's tell them something. You know, build a database. And it doesn't mean you take a database and steal it from someone. Everyone could access this database and you could really start to build. But you also need a, you need a window I believe, where you can showcase your sport, whatever that window is, so you could regularly showcase it, and ideally with some kind of um, pre-produced show as well, which the NBA have always done so well. I mean, you know, people first learned about the NBA really through inside stuff or, or their shows or their clips, and they've never seen a full game. If you've ever seen a full NBA game, it's not the best advert. Mm. Yeah, they're long go on yeah but but they've built such a uh, a platform and such an image and uh you know i'm not saying that you're going to be the nba overnight but there are aspects that you can do that you can do that you can take from them and and i think it's it's just a, a question of putting things together and having a strategy and then working at it and it might be a 5 10 15 year strategy but it's got to start somewhere it's not going to happen overnight for sure yeah, 100%. It's a, it's a massive uh, long-term thing. I, I've said it a few times, but uh, one of the things I feel like I've done a full 360 on in terms of my own views about the game is the TV thing. And I, I used to always find that people um, 
that have been around the sport a long, lot longer than me that sort of run BBL clubs or whatever would say, oh, you know, we need a TV to do. And if we, if we don't have a TV to do, it makes things very, very difficult. And I used to always be like, obviously, I'm very digital first in kind of my thinking and social first. And I was always like, I just don't think it's necessary anymore. Then at the NBA, the last NBA game um, that was in London, I went into the lobby outside of the game for, I don't know, I was out there for about an hour, two hours, just with, with fans coming in. I was pulling fans to one side and just interviewing them. Because I think one of the interesting things about the British game is we have a lot of basketball fans that are not British basketball fans. We've got loads of people that love the NBA but have zero interest in GB, have zero interest in the BBL. And so I was just interviewing people saying, you know, what, what made you come to the game today? You know, um, what is it about the NBA that you like? And uh, what do you know about British basketball? Can you name me, you know, any players from GB? Can you name me a BBL franchise? And just the levels of disconnect there where they just had zero clue about the British game. And then when I said, well, what would it take for you to know about it? A lot of them were completely open to knowing about it. They all said, well, you know, if, if I knew who my local team was or what was going on, 100%. And it's like, okay, well, how would you find out? all of them said tv like if it was just on tv you know you're watching the news and you get a little segment on the sport on the sports section saying okay this london lines beat whoever last night and this happened and this happened um yeah they would feel that it was kind of in their consciousness and that's where like in my mind like you've just said i do think tv is a huge part of it and then of course the production values like i think the bbl obviously done that deal this season with um I can't remember the name of the company now. The ones that do the automated, the automated cameras and just the production there. Like for me, the product just isn't. Uh, up key, to, key, key motion. motion. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Um, the production just isn't up to standards yet. The camera can't keep up with the ball when it's when it's moving fast up the court. And so as a result, I look back on this season, and you know we're talking about there were some great plays and some great moments. But when you look back on the tape of like, well, how are you going to package this to make it look good? And it's just like, you can't, it just looks like, well, a lot of it, for me, a lot of it looks like it's filmed from a security camera up in the, up in the roof. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's one of them things where it's a chicken and egg situation where until, you know, you have the budget to be able to increase the production and, and, and make it a, a decent product, you can't do that. But how are you going to do that without, it's like, you can't do one without the other, you know? Um, anyway, I'm, 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 I'm ranting. So, yeah, super interesting one. I don't know. Yeah, it's... you, you, what you say actually there is is a good point. One of the things that I, I understand is um, people talk about netball in in the UK now. Now netball obviously has, you know, it's the number one girl sport. Uh, it, it, they've done a tremendous job. It's a very well run federation. And uh, uh, when they started on Sky, my understanding was they went to Sky and they said we would like netball to be on sky but they didn't say oh will you produce it and how much are you going to pay us for it they said give us the time for a regular slot slot and give us the broadcast sponsorship around that slot they then went to spa spa became their sponsor the money that spa gave them they put into the production so they then had the Spa National Championships. I think it was Spa or whoever, the, the, the Spa National Championships. They had it regularly on Sky. Mm. They had their, their commentators and what have you. And they then built it and they gave them, what do Spa get in, in exchange? Well, it's their, their title sponsor of the league. And they get the advertising around the Sky production, which they don't have to pay for, but they pay for the production. So the clubs don't get any money from the sponsorship, but they've got a window and, th and they did a really good job. They packed the place again, not huge arenas, 
but every time you saw them play, it was well presented. There were always loads of kids there. Mums were there. The fans, they all put them on one side, and they did a really good job. And over time, now, they don't have to buy the time from Sky because Sky have seen it as, as a value. And again, it, it's something where they thought out of the box, uh, something a bit a bit different. Yeah. Um did you find, uh, I don't know whether this is disclosing information that you're not allowed to disclose, but I'll ask the question anyway. Uh, obviously, when, when you're at FIBA and, um, you know, around national team competitions, obviously GB games in the windows and stuff like that. Uh, if Did you have any conversations with potential broadcasters in the UK about taking those games? And I mean, just in general, you don't have to talk about specifics if you can't. Um, did you find there was any type of reception from the likes of the BBC or, you know, whoever to take those games? Like, yeah, like, what did you feel the kind of general sentiment was from the, the sort of the mainstream broadcasters around around the, the GB national team games? Um, it's a very good question. And it was always something that at FIBA, I always felt um, passionate about because obviously as, as a Brit, yeah. I always want to get so whenever when when GB made the uh, qualifiers for the for the World Cup, if you remember, they were in a, in a group um, first group. We went and and we went to all of the broadcasts. So we had eighty teams playing around the world, and we had all our broadcast deals. And we went to UK. We spoke to every single broadcaster in the UK to to chat to them to say this is available and. It, we didn't talk about money, didn't talk about you have to produce the game, didn't talk about anything. It was just, this is coming. Is there any interest? And basically, the res- there was no response wow. in terms of any kind of thing. And then you go a bit further and you try and say, okay, how do we do it and stuff. But we'd have some people saying to us, well, um, one someone was going to take it and then they started saying well who's going to be the commentators we have to have our commentators i said but what do you mean who are going to be the commentator we're going to produce it at a level that is eight cameras which is far more than the bbl game or or whatever far more than you as the bbc or itv or bt sport or sky would do we're going to have an english commentary for you so all you have to do is put it on plug and play i mean it, it will all be all the graphics are there and everything so said yeah but well who are, who are the commentators go are they going to you know we have credibility issues and i said but the commentators are going to be people that know basketball who would you have as commentators <laughs> yeah. and they were like well no but you understand that our brand and that and it was just really quite unbelievable conversation and uh, we had another broadcast and said, well, if they get to the final, this is, we're talking about the World Cup qualifiers. If they get to the final, then the maybe World we Cup. could we could be interested. And I said, okay. You're. But I remember going years ago when we're in the Eurobasket um, and, uh, you know, to try and get some, some interest there. And I have to tell you that I, I know this for a fact because I was responsible in all the last, 29 years I worked with FIBA and whenever we've tried to do stuff in the UK, the barrier to getting coverage in the UK has never been because of cost of money. It's never been a question of FIBA saying, well, you've got to pay us a hundred thousand because for, for FIBA, 
you know, as in most sports, 90% uh, of your revenues come from 10% of your countries. You know, it's the same in foot, football, slightly different, but basically your big revenue. So, yeah. and, and the UK has always been one that everyone has always been working to see how we can develop. The, the NBA is no different. The EuroLeague is no different. The BCL is, uh, Basketball Champions League is no different or FIBA or anyone else. We're always trying to see how can we develop it. But just trying to get a partner on board to commit. But it's, it's, it's hard because there's no DNA at yeah. the moment there. But you're right. The NBA game is played in London and it's sold out in in an hour. Yeah, yeah. Don't you, don't you think uh, a massive part of the whole thing, like when you're talking about the struggles that it has breaking through, it a lot of it comes down to just not having the right people in the right places. Like at the moment, if I was the head of programming at the BBC, all of a sudden you would think that I'd be able to somehow, because of my connections or whatever, be able to get basketball in, right? Like, And we just don't... It's like it's the same thing in Parliament when you're talking about funding and, and all that kind of stuff. We just don't have people in high places within the UK that are fighting the sports corner, you know? Do you think that plays a role? Yeah, yeah for sure. And I, I mean, I can't, as I say, you know, I left, I left the UK in 1990 and I came back for for three years i mean i've not been there really since then so i can't turn around and say for fact because i don't don't know it's yeah. only what i see from 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 overseas but certainly um i i believe that um basketball has some work to do politically but also PR wise, because, you know, I said about Ovi, I mean, you know, Justin Robinson, Ovi, uh, Dan Clark. Uh, I mean, there's just three people that, you know, just come to, to, to think of, but there's many more that these are people that, you know, uh, Ovi right now is hot or he was last year. I'm sure he still is at the moment until the next Love Island or, 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 or whatever. You know, has anyone thought, how can we use him? He's a national team player. He's articulate. People like him. He's a likable person. So is there something that we can run? And, and right, maybe if you go to his representatives, they say, well, how much are you going to pay him or whatever? And so maybe you have to say, well, look, this is something about the future. This is something that can can we use you? Can you help us? But help us with some kind of plan, you know, can he go on a league of their own? You know, um, can we get him on uh, a regular slot on TalkSport Radio talking about basketball? I mean, I, I'm just making it yeah, up yeah, or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But something where we've got somewhere. But there are some people that have a love of basketball that are also involved in um, in business that if they were – approached or brought together i mean i played i said to you i played in 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 um in manchester last uh with this british masters i'd heard about it and we said let's get a crystal palace together again so a team together so i said okay so body allowing i went on that i was blown away there were 700 people there 40 year 50 60 year old groups and there were all these people and I was chatting to them at the dinner on the Saturday night, and they all come out and said, oh, I remember you. And they were saying to Dan and Pete and all the rest of it. And uh, Chris Akabusi is the um, ambassador for it. 
Okay. He was a great guy. And I, I did something with Chris years ago when he was at Solent with Wheatabix, a doctor sport for Olympic appeal and stuff. So we're chatting and what have you. But just thinking, I said to them, so are you watching Barcelona now? Oh, no, don't go. A bit like what you were saying. Don't go. And these are all people that are either still playing, the kids are playing, they love the game. Someone got their own company. I mean, there was a there was a shirt going, a GB shirt that someone paid. I think it was five thousand for as a charity. You know, just that night, three thousand or five thousand. So someone has some means, and I'm just looking. I'm thinking, there's eight hundred people here. <laughs> Say two hundred or three hundred of them are interested. But we, we're missing them. They don't feel engaged. Yeah. They still love the sport, but they're not engaged. How can we get them involved? Because if there's 200 or 300 there, I'm sure there's some in London. I'm sure there's some elsewhere. How do we get them together? Yeah. How do we get them just talking to, to find a way? I mean, you know, and someone might say, oh, I do know the head of sport at the BBC yeah. or BT Sport or Sky or Channel 4, Channel 5, whoever. Yeah. Oh, maybe I can help you. Or, you know, oh, I'm now actually the managing director of a brewery. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. maybe I can do something. But look, it's not easy. Huh? I mean, there's, yeah. it's not a quick fix. But I think certainly everything needs to come together. And I think there's some really good people still very much involved in basketball. I, I, my hat off to people that are still from my era, still involved with the BBL clubs and, and coaching basketball and doing the grassroots development. And there's some really good other people um, uh, involved. And then I, I believe there's a way forward. I believe that if we can get everyone together, you know, there's, there's really, and, and, and the young people that say digital is your area. Well, we need a digital strategy, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, but it's all joined up. It's, you can't do anything in, you know, basketball is a team sport and to bring basketball together, everyone has to be as a team. Yeah. So jumping, jumping around a little bit here, because I'm aware of time, obviously we kind of, we've spoken about national team stuff, spoken about the junior stuff coming up. I, I did want to touch upon kind of like the. I guess the years at the years at Crystal Palace, and then you spent time at, at Kingston and Solent as well, right? I, th- I believe. Um, kind of when you look back on on those times, are, are there any particular seasons, moments that stick out? Uh, great stories that you want to share. Um, you know, obviously playing under Kevin Cadle as well, I believe. So there's kind of like a bit of a legend there. That, but yeah, anything in uh, that sort of comes to mind that um, is, is worth worth talking about, I guess. Um. Yeah, I, yeah, I was, I, I was blessed. I was, for the most part, as I played at Crystal Palace, and um, you know, when when I first, my first year uh, with the with the team, I was still eligible for the juniors, but I was training and, and didn't play that much, but training with the team. Uh, there was a um, a player, Mark Sayers, was one of our Americans, and. Other American was a guy from Kansas State called Larry Dassey, God bless him, uh, who came and again he was a 22-year-old kid just graduated, you know, and I was what 19, so he was my kind of a little older, but he, you know, I was uh, I, I learned a lot from him, very charismatic kind of player, uh, incredibly talented, um, and then. And then after after him we had um, didn't play us. And then in 70, 79, as as everyone uh, uh, knows, um, is when when Orton joined. Um, and then we had Orton for three years, 
Um, what would and, it like going um, up against Orton every day at practice? Uh, tough. <laughs> because at that point, you can't understand. I mean, you know, we used to do these drills. We used to do these drills where you'd go one-on-one kind of, you'd zigzag half to half court and then go one-on-one. And with Orton, I mean, you, you wouldn't have seen there aren't that many tapes. But Orton had this, you know, ability one, you know, the zigzag was kind of just not bad. But once you hit half half court, it was like game on. But he was so damn quick. And and he, he had the ability because he, he was just, you know, it's 5'9", so he's been small. He was a big, big player despite his stature. He knew... He's very smart, Columbia grad. He knew the game, and his whole role was just making everyone around him better. But he used to have this situation where he'd almost stop, and as a defender, you'd kind of just relax for a sec, and the next minute, he's past you. I mean, just unbelievable speed. He, he could have played, I mean, you know, when he came, he could have played anywhere in Europe. I mean, we were fortunate that uh, he came because uh, at that time, one of the investors of the club had a, a medical research company and he was the next Columbia grad too. So we had, uh, we had Orton, but, uh, but I remember, you know, we used to go one on one, but then with Orton, it used to be two on one. So we'd have two defenders and two of our youngsters trying to, to stop him, what have you. But, but I always remember that, you know, he always said to me, he said, look, whenever I penetrate, just move to an open space and get your hands ready. Because you knew that when he penetrated, he wasn't going to go for the shot. As soon as people came to him, he'd find the open man. And, um, you know, he, he developed my game to such a point. But, but after that, then suddenly when he goes out and it's like, okay, Paul, you need to bring the ball out. It's like, no, no, I'd like being an off guard. <laughs> you know, give it to Orton. Because, you know, you used to give it to Orton and just run up the court, find your spot. And, you know, and we had Pete Jeremich on one side, me on another. Then we had, um, we had Mark. We had, uh, first year we didn't have Dan, and then Dan joined. Mark Sayers left. He, he went down to Solent. And we had, um, we then had Bob Roma, who was a Princeton grad, who was a very, very talented, uh, very, very talented player. And then at that point, also, you know, we had Richard Rudd. We had uh, Mike Beck coming up, Clive Hartley um, coming up. Uh, Roger Richardson, who was with us, and just so many players, um, uh, and then Joel, uh, and then after, after we had Vic Tinsley for a coach, and then we were going to have uh, Bill Sweek, who was the uh, European rep headed up um, Adidas. We were going to have him as as coach, um, and he came and he brought this assistant coach from Detroit, Danny Palmer, um, and Bill. It didn't work out, and Bill left and went back. So Danny became our coach in second year with Orton, which was 80, 81 season. And, uh, yeah, Dan had us really working hard as a team. He had the, We played hard. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We had a really together team. Um, and, and pre-season, we used to go in cars, you know, we'd go to Germany, we'd drive to Germany and we're playing a tournament and then we go to France and, you know, there'd be, you know, 12, 14 people in four cars that would follow each other and stuff. So we used to have great road trips and uh, we had 
really good volunteers, uh, you know, that were with us. Wally Williams was our team manager. And I remember, I remember we played, I remember we played the Butlins Cup final in Sheffield, I think it was in 1980. And it was with Orton and we had Dan and, and we won. And just before the end of the game, Just Juice were the sponsor. Uh, it was a Butlins Cup and Just Juice were the sponsor of the league. So we all had you know, loads of Just Juice. I remember Wally coming down and he'd go cocktail anyone, you know, throughout. And on the last uh, couple of minutes when we, we'd won the game, he'd just put vodka in the orange juice and he was passing it down, celebrating for the last minute. So we were all having a drink of, uh, of uh, our Just Juice, which is a great ad. Um, but, um, yeah, we had, we had a great time. Then Orton... Orton left to go up to Murray, to Scotland. Um, and uh, and we went up to, to Scotland. We used to play just before the playoffs. Uh, David Murray had the Murray International uh, team up there. And Orton went up there because he wanted to run basketball. Um, and he wanted a team that could take on the world. And um, I remember, again, because I was teaching, I would... Um, I would always travel up a bit later because I, I wouldn't go up with the team because they go a day earlier because I was, I was teaching. But I remember I went up there. We played Murray in March the 9th, 1983. We played Murray. So this was the year after the year after uh, Orton left and we had Dave Schutz was our uh, was our player. And uh, and our big guy was Greg McRae, um, who, who joined us. Orton had gone. Bob Romer had gone back. And I remember that we went up there. We won in overtime against uh, against Murray. And afterwards, it's, uh, I met someone from Murray, uh, the girl who was the general manager uh, of the thing, offered to buy her a drink, and her sister was there. And at that point, I met her. A year later, married her. And 35 years later, still married after four kids. So, um, wow. so you know, I, when I said Bart was giving me everything, it really, it really has. Um, and then, and then after that, that period, we had Dave Schutz for a year. Then we had, um, uh, then we had Brian Kellerman. I broke my ankle in 1983 in Manchester. So I sat out for two, 10 weeks or so. And that was tough. Um, and that was a tough year when, when you watch the team, we, I came back just before the finals, but we lost to Sun. we lost to, we lost to some, no, we lost to Warrington in the semi-finals of the playoffs. We had Kellerman, Joel Moore, Steve Bucknell came back from uh, college for that uh, for that game, but we lost in the semis there, which was disappointing. Um, and then the following year, how did uh, how did Steve Bucknell come back from college to play in a game? Uh, I don't know. Maybe he was high school at that point. Ah, okay, okay. Maybe it was before '84. Was it before? I'd have to double check the dates, but yeah, possibly. Yeah, maybe it was his last year of high school and he okay. came back. But he literally came back in April, so it must have been before he went to UNC. Right, right, right. Um, but we we're unfortunate there. But yeah, so we had um, uh, we had Buck. Uh, but then we had a couple of years. I had a year with um, uh, Baba Jennings, who is probably one of the greatest scorers that's ever been. He's the only player, I think, that's averaged 40 points a game for the league. Uh, 5-11, a three-point shooter like you've never seen. A pure, pure, pure shooter. Played at Texas Tech. Um, And, um, yeah, he averaged 40 points for the season. Uh, Jimmy Guyman was coaching us. Tom Seaman, uh, 
Mickey Pat played myself. But it was a bit different year because you can imagine when you've got someone on your team who's scoring 40 and he was a great player, we played a very up-tempo, high-speed game, but kind of a lot more kind of run and gun, whereas I was more maybe traditional, you know, more of a setup and a, a team aspect. But then after that year, we had, there were financial problems and the club uh, merged in the 86, 87 season. Uh, we merged with Brunel to become BCP. Okay. And that was, that was an interesting year because we joined Brunel who had um, a Argentinian who became English called uh, Julio Politi. Okay. Yeah. Phil Ralph. Phil Ralph was on that team. John Burnell was a young uh, rookie. Steve Panofka, uh, the great Cedric Frederick, was on the team. And uh, and then we had uh, two Americans, Dale Roberts and Brian Kellybrew, uh, and myself, uh, and uh, myself and Mickey uh, Bet went to went to Brunel. And it was a, a tough year because, you know, we started, we didn't have a deep, deep bench. Uh, we managed to kind of get through, managed to get through the season. No, Steve Ball was the other player that came from Crystal Palace for it. We managed to get through the season. We made the playoffs. We beat Leicester, best of three in the playoffs uh, when they had uh, Clyde Vaughan, and Barry Young, they were just two score machines, but we beat them in three games. And then we went to the finals, and that was the year that Portsmouth were stacked. Kingston were Bontrager, Davis, Clark, Colin McNish, Kenny Scott, Doug Lloyd, Andy Nell, Richie Rudd. Uh, and Steve Nelson was playing at, at Portsmouth. And we were just, I mean, we were there to make up the numbers, but we got a team and one thing we had it was probably in many ways the most satisfying group we had we just kind of all came together as a group over the year and it was us against the world and uh we managed to beat we managed to beat Portsmouth in a close close game in the semi-final at Wembley and then in the final Julio had an unbelievable game stopped Steve Brontrager and then himself went out and scored 20 odd and uh and we beat the great Kingston and uh, and that was that was a fantastic, fantastic result, and one of the greatest achievements, probably, with just a group of guys that just went out and played hard. You know, we just kind of everyone hung out together. We had very underrated players, but everyone just knew their role and just played hard. It was obviously it was a, huge, a huge upset, I assume. Like a huge upset. Everyone thought it would be a Portsmouth Kingston final. And uh, yeah, it's a huge, huge upset. So uh, that was that that was tough because that was when you're not relying on anyone else. I mean, you know, you really were out there just giving it your all. So, so that was that was when you talk about big things happening like that in in the domestic league at that point. What was the um, what was the coverage like? Sort of the next day after that in the like, in the papers on TV, like kind of was it out there or or was it yeah it was it was out the newspapers the game was live i want to say the bbc on grandstand i'd have to check but uh simon reed i think simon reed and bill bezik would no stuart story 
and Bill Bezik were commentating, if I remember correctly. But they still have it. Someone showed me, put the link actually the other week on something. It's still on. It's on YouTube. Okay. The the games and what have you. So that was uh, that was that was when the shorts were short and uh, when we uh, <laughs> played hard. So, but at the end of that season, after all this incredible sort of thing, then BCP disappeared and Dale and Brian Kelly, Dale Roberts, Brian Kelly, Brew, Julio, Mickey all went to Bracknell with Scants and, and Sam Stiller, and uh, I went to, to Kingston. So I then had a year with Kingston, with Kevin, and I knew I knew Kevin before when he was at uh, Falkirk at Solripe because I'd gone up to see Pat at the time before we were married, and we'd gone to the finals, and Murray had beaten them in the final, but I saw him afterwards and went up and introduced him. He said, yeah, I know who you are, and we were just chatting about ball. And then um, had the opportunity to, to play there, for a year, I, and by that time, I was actually um, running the Basketball Monthly. Uh, the year before, I was running the Basketball Monthly magazine and working for a celebrity group that were linked to, to the Kingston team. The owners had their full monthly magazine that I was involved with, but also um, uh, they ran a celebrity group and I was involved in different promotional campaigns. I did a European uh, English tour with Pretty Polly Tights, which was going out stockings and tights, going out to nightclubs for about three months, uh, two nightclubs a week. But that I won't go anymore. That was in the summer, though. That was on the off season. Um, but but basically, I then went and played at Kingston. And that year, there was Steve, Dan, Doug Lloyd, um, Colin McNish, Kenny Scott, Martin. Uh, Mike Griffiths, myself, and that was a that was a great year. A different year. Kevin is one of the best coaches I've ever played played with, uh, played for. Um, he just had this this way of just getting the best out of people. He was a great man manager, knew his exit knows, never panicked. But if you screwed up or you know don't come to him crying. You know, he would he would tell you that. But uh, I really enjoyed the year. Uh, we won everything playing, that year. Did you play was, in Europe that year as well? Yeah, we did play. Yeah, we did play in Europe that year. We lost out to Limoges in I think it was like the quarterfinals, which was disappointing. But uh, but we had a good we had a good year. Um, and then at that point, Kingston sold the franchise to Glasgow Rangers. Glasgow Rangers bought the team and everyone moved up to Glasgow and um, and I was working. So, I mean, there was no way I was going to give up work to go up to Glasgow. And, um, and so for that year, um, I was thinking, what do I do? Maybe do I stop or do I slow down, concentrate on my work? And, uh, and Mark Sayers gave me a call and he said, uh, you know, I'm coaching down at Solent you know, why don't you come down and, and, and play here? We're building a team. You know, and I said, well, look, I'm, I'm working. So, you know, my commitment, I would be able to train in the evenings, but I can't train during the day. And, you know, because my work comes first, but I certainly look to do it. So I went down there um, and we had Drew Saw was there, Mark Scott, uh, Russell Taylor was with us, Nick Burns, Paul Philp was, was still around. And then 
We had Phil Smith, I think, was a point guard, American point guard. But after about two months or six weeks, two months, things fell away. Mark got fired. Um, Steve Fitzsimmons was assistant coach. But Phil, I think it was Phil Smith, the point guard, became player coach. But it was kind of a – it wasn't the best situation. I mean, there was money problems. Uh, we finished, I don't know, second or third from bottom of the league. I've never in my life ever been – bottom of the league so i found that, found that tough and it, it was just a different environment Solent, i mean i still look for their results uh and what have you and the, the organization was fine it was just they were going through tough times and it wasn't the best scenario and at that point i thought okay well that would be it and then after one year kingston came back from glasgow moved back and um and the situation came where i could go back and I played one last year there. And at that time there was Alan Cunningham, Alton, Michael Blunt, Richard Scantlebury, Joel. And it was a great last year. And I, I really was at that, that point I was, I was working. I was just I was playing a role coming off the bench and, and helping wherever I could help. But it was a really fun team to be with. Uh, Richard Scantlebury was on that team, and uh, and we won every we won that year, uh, and then it was at that year that uh, I had a situation where I was uh, working for the Boston uh, Monthly Magazine, but I was also working for Zodiac Toys that was also owned by the celebrity group, and then in January of that year, in January 1990. The toy chain, which I was marketing manager of, went bust. No one wants to buy a toy chain in January after Christmas. Yeah. And so I was looking around thinking, what do I do for opportunity? And I remember former managing director of Converse in Europe, Richard Wolf Dampree, uh, who was one of the advertisers for the Boston Monthly Magazine, said, you know, um, uh, FIBA, there's a FIBA have a new agency called ISL we've just become a sponsor of FIBA and I know they're looking for a basketball manager. And I said, Oh really? And you know, what's that? Oh, it's in, in Switzerland. And they gave me the contact and the, the person that was running ISL at the time for the basketball and athletics was a guy called Peter Sprogis. Now Peter Sprogis in 1976, when I first started training with the junior, uh, with the seniors actually played for two months at Crystal Palace before he took a job with the BBL. And he was the person that came out with the, carpet uh we all wore adidas that year they had a carpet that they played on because uh it was the first year of channel four okay and they had the channel four deal and they all the gyms always looked like london underground because you had all the different lines on for badminton and hockey and everything so they came up with the idea they put down a carpet so every gym whenever you played looked the same and it was really weird because you kind of They'd hoover it before the game, so you'd be warming up and there'd be someone hoovering it with the with the lead. And of course, if you took a charge or you fell, you'd get carpet burns. Couldn't hit a ball bounce. But if you go back and ever see any of the Channel Four games, they had a carpet, but it gave an identity where every game looked the same, which was great. He did a deal with Adidas, so Adidas provided all the uniforms, all the footwear for all the teams. So everyone was uh, decked with Adidas. And, uh, and so Peter had then left and, and, and joined uh, ISL. And I went there for an interview and, um, and got the job. 
subject to getting a work permit. So I knew in March that I was going to almost certainly going to be moving to Lucerne in, in Switzerland uh, in 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 August, but couldn't say anything until my work permit was through. Uh, and it came through literally just after, just before um, the finals, which were in Birmingham. And uh, we beat Bracknell in the semis, and then we beat Sunderland in the final. And that was my, my last game. Wow. And then I moved in July 1990 to, to Switzerland and started working uh, with FIBA. And, uh, so that was essentially why you ended up stop, stopping playing? Uh, yes, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it was always work uh, related, and uh, I had this opportunity. And and likewise for me, moving there, it was, you know, people were like, "Boy, you're going there with, you know, this, you know." I had the twins were five. I had boys of five. I had another boy of eighteen months, and uh, they said, "You know, you're going there, foreign language. You don't know anyone and stuff." And in retrospect, you know, it's, very, it's the best thing I ever did. Yeah. And and then from there, I've been involved in in sponsorship tv media and basketball ever since just uh, again i'm aware of time because we're going on a bit but uh just quickly if you were to give us the brief high level um rundown of sort of what you've done at fiba uh, since you know the, those days back in 1990 all the way through until until recently where obviously now you've just made the switch to the zone um yeah, can you kind of give us a, you know, if people that don't know what you've been doing, what you're up to, what, what, what you've done in that period, can you kind of give us the brief high-level summary, I guess? Um, okay, um, yeah, very briefly. Um, <laughs> in, in 1990, I joined um, uh, ISL, who is a sports marketing company. They they looked after the Olympics, all the sponsorship marketing for the Olympics, the FIFA World Cup, Euro, football, athletics and basketball um and so i worked uh the secretary with mr stankovic at the time and i was involved in all the um the sponsorship uh and and television and operations linked to what was the european club championship at the time which then in 2000 became uh the euroleague um but also all the national competitions the world cup european championships and, and the world championships so my first world championship was 1990 in in, uh, in Argentina, um, and then over a period of time, I worked uh, with with FIBA. Uh, in 2000, when when FIBA um, ISL went uh, went uh, bust, uh, I I came back and I worked uh, for three years uh, with uh, the a uh, little bit between. I was based in England for three years. I came back to run a tennis program uh, for the ATP tennis series for Dell. Uh, then it went bust, so I was in the UK, um, and I did some work with uh, the ECB cricket on the 2020 cricket competition, which t- uh, took off, and also then did some work with uh, with FIBA. Uh, and in 2003, I went back to FIBA as an employee of FIBA, and they just moved to Geneva. Um, and so I then moved the family back to Geneva in 2003, where I, I took over um, running the the media and, and sponsorship side. Um, and then since then, until uh, November last year, I was responsible basically for all of the media aspects linked to not just the, the – the World Championships, FIBA, 
took all of the rights in-house for all of its competition. So um, the Asian Championships, the African Championships, uh, Asia Basket, Afro Basket, the Americas Championships, Eurobasket, and the World Championships, they were all packaged together. So we'd distribute them to broadcasters around the world. Uh, we started uh, FIBA TV, which then moved to live basketball TV. We had uh, we had joint ventures with the EuroLeague at one point, which now they have their own EuroLeague TVs, but we worked with them. Um, and then the last program was uh, with the uh, new calendar, where we have all the qualifiers, uh, which started um, in um, in 2017. Uh, we had the qualifiers, so we had then 80 countries in qualifiers where you're responsible for not only the sales, but all of the production in all of the 80 countries around the world. And, um, and then I decided uh, in November last year, or I, I stepped in, away in November last year, it was decided a year before um, that uh, I have a change of pace. And uh, DAZN, who is FIBA's 17-year partner on all their media rights, it used to be called the Perform Group. Um, and now they, they have DAZN, which is an OTT channel uh, around the world. And I'm now working with them um, uh, with relationships with governing bodies and looking at uh, um, rights acquisition for future uh, events on a worldwide basis that can fit into their OTT platform. Perfect. So, so final question before we wrap up. Final one. Um, obviously, you're a man of extensive experience. You know, not just as a player, but also on the on the on the other side of the game, kind of off the court. Could you ever see a scenario where you end up? coming back to the UK and getting involved with one of the federations here and, and sort of trying to make it work uh, in this country? Um, you like putting me on the spot there. Um, <laughs> I don't know if my wife, as originally from the Caribbean, could ever take the British weather. She, I promised her that we would retire in the sun. Um, so... Moving back to the UK full time, do I see myself doing that? Maybe less likely. Yeah. Do I have a passion to help, assist, guide in any way linked to help British basketball? No question. I mean, it's in my blood. I've had so. I told you at the beginning everything I owe to basketball, and I would I would love to see the the shoots that we have seeds that we have around the country and around Great Britain come to fruition. And I, and I think there are some real positive parts, but there's a lot of work to be done and people yourself are doing a great job and there's many others and we need to bring everyone together. And if I can help in any way, then I'm only too happy to do so if I can. That's a perfect place to leave it. Uh, Paul, thank you so much. Much appreciated. And uh, I feel like there's loads of stuff that uh, we didn't get to. So maybe at some point in the future, we'll have to do a part two. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Sam. And uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay sane. <laughs> basketball will come back. We will have live <laughs> basketball. I promise you. Thanks a lot, Sam. Pleasure. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.